Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. So I have a reader this morning that I'm going to invite up. Uh, Dennis Volrath is going to read to us from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Reading from Ecclesiastes 1 out of the New King James. The word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again in its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come, but those who will come after. You know, a week ago Friday... I made a quick stop at the gas station on my way towards the coast. It was my day off and I planned to surf and to run, but I needed to top off my tank and also get a bottle of water. And I'm sure I broke some international law by putting uh, you know, the gas into the car and then leaving the nozzle running while I went in to make my purchase. But when I came out of the gas station with the pump still running, uh, I heard the sound of a woman's voice and it kind of caught my ear. And we live in the 21st century where we no longer can pump our gas without having a large television screen to look at. And so it was the TV that was speaking to me, and it was the sound of a woman's voice. And she said something to the effect of, with spring all around us, new life is what we see, which leaves us with the age-old question, what makes for the good life? A question we have answers for right now. And with that, the gas pump clicked, The tank was full, and the screen went off, which kind of bothered me. The age-old question finally had answers. All day it bothered me. I mean, it's been nearly two weeks, and I'm still thinking about it. My life may never be the same nor complete because that pump shut off at just the most inopportune of times, which feels like a twisted form of fate, doesn't it? all because I missed my chance to hear the keys to the good life. So I did what any self-respecting you know, 21st century adult would do in the era like we live in, and that's that I asked Professor, good, or Professor Google, what are the keys to the good life? And he sent me the direction of Forbes. Forbes.com answered back with an article entitled, The Ten Golden Rules on Living the Good Life. And I'll tell you, I was so overwhelmed by what they suggested in this article, not even having the slightest clue where to begin. And so I quickly moved on from it. I'll just give you one quick example from it. The golden rule number five, this is what it gave, again, just as an example for you. 
Golden rule number five, master yourself. Resist any external force that might delimit thoughts and actions. Stop deceiving yourself, believing only what is personally useful and convenient. Completely liberate or complete liberty necessitates a struggle within, a battle to subdue negative psychology and spiritual forces that preclude a healthy existence. Self-mastery requires ruthless candor. And that was just number five. So I found myself on Mayo Clinic's website, and they too had suggestions, but I don't know how I can find a way to get more sleep. I don't know where to find better friends. I also don't know how to think in exclusively a positive frame of mind. If you know me, you know that one would be the most difficult of all of those things. And like you, I'm kind of tired of hearing to eat more vegetables. And so I moved on from Mayo Clinic and decided to go with a less intense angle and found myself looking at an article on Vanity Fair that was entitled Six Steps to Finding Inner Happiness and Successfully Marketing It. Now here I was naively thinking that inner peace or, or finding keys to the good life was about me in my own heart and life finding myself at peace and at rest. Little did I know that I need to do that so that I can then market it and monetize it because that's what they were ready to help me to do. The author suggests uh, a whole bunch of different things that I have to be honest with you were absolutely all over the place. But she started with step one. Here's what you've got to do if you want to live the good life. You have to learn to love yourself. And I quote, so every morning when I look in the mirror, I say, I love you. And every morning the answer comes back at me, I love you. It's not the same for everyone, of course. When you look in your mirror, you will not see me. You will see yourself. That is your tragedy. Learn to live with it. <laughs> Keys to the good life. You know, it's interesting that if you look even in ancient history, in antiquity, some of the oldest of writings are Akkadian and Sumerian writings that are trying to answer this very question. These ancient writings like the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Sumerian poem that's entitled Nothing is of Value. It's on Egyptian hieroglyphics, on the tombs of ancient pharaohs, the harper songs that would be joyful exuberance about the freedom that people would experience in the afterlife, and then other people would sing different songs saying that we're uncertain of what the afterlife will be like, and so make the most of what you've got while here and giving pointers for what it would look like to live the good life. And the Bible leans into this ancient conversation and dialogue about what makes for the good life, it weighs in with its own ancient form of wisdom literature, making its own contribution in the form of three different writings, three ancient documents. It's really one of the beautiful and unique things about the Bible is that God inspired these biblical authors to tell a single story through a diversity of voices, not just utilizing the voice and the pen of, of a variety of different people. He did do that, which is pretty amazing, but even him inspiring that diverse group to utilize different forms and genres of literary styles. And maybe this is a little too nerdy for you, but think about this with me. This is so unique about the Bible. Within the Hebrew scriptures, even the Old Testament, there's historical narrative. Your mind goes to Joshua and Judges. There's law. You might think of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There's prophecy. It's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and a dozen more. There's poetry like the Psalms or Song of Solomon or Lamentations. And there is what is referred to as ancient wisdom literature. And I'd venture to guess that for most of you, your mind instantly goes to the book entitled The Proverbs. 
There's another book, though, that you'd also know probably as a part of wisdom literature, and that's the book of Job. For others of you, maybe your mind went to the third and final book that makes up that category, and that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Now think about this with me. If the wisdom literature of the Bible only contained the Proverbs, we'd probably feel like we were swindled by some cosmic used car salesman. Think about it. They're all asking, all three of them are asking the same question, what is the good life? And how would one grasp and experience it? And the Proverbs are all about pursuing chokmah, about pursuing wisdom. And it leaves you with this optimism that if I use wisdom, it's going to lead me to the good life. But then Job shatters what feels like a foolproof plan when you get to the end of Proverbs with all of your ducks in a row. Job shatters that because all of a sudden Job comes along walking in wisdom and fearing, revering God, honoring him, and yet his life falls apart. And worse still, God seems to be a part of the process of taking Job's life apart. So then you find yourself running towards Ecclesiastes, looking for some hope. And then you begin to read it. (laughs) You're trying to make sense of it all, only to find what feels like this antagonizing voice saying, oh, you think you've worked out a formula, have you? Think again. It's all vanity, he says, and chasing the wind. It's an empty pursuit. You see, the voice of Ecclesiastes tells you that there's a system glitch. If Proverbs says, here's how the rules work, this is how it operates and functions, Ecclesiastes says something's broken in the system. There's a glitch. It's faulty. On this side of Eden, it's a broken system. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, let me quote to you from verses 11 and 12, where the writer says, I returned and saw the saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift. The idea is that it's not always won by the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. See, the voice of Ecclesiastes, it wades into the brokenness of life in a broken, sin-splintered system It wades into it with us as a companion and speaks very honestly about the brokenness of the system. It's been said that Proverbs receives the wisdom of the ages and then passes it along to you. It's that you know that it's true because it's ancient, because it's tried and tested over time, whereas Ecclesiastes is written about the experimentation and experience of someone who set out on their own journey And you know that it's true because it was both his experience and you found in life that it's your own also, your own experience in a broken system. The problem is we like functional systems, especially as modern people, right? I mean, just this week I had an issue with my printer at my house where I'm sending the message to the printer through the cable from my laptop, the command to print, and it keeps popping up with an error message. Now, the error message was unlike one I had dealt with before with this printer because the error message was a software response saying that there was an issue with the hardware. So then I'd turn it off and open it up and look at the hardware components and say, no, everything's in the place that it should be. I'd close it and reset it again, and it kept telling me again and again, no, something foreign has been put here. The software's confused about the hardware, and so the hardware can't function without the software saying it's okay and receiving the command to print. So I finally got online and watched this tutorial, and so I followed it step by step. You unplug the power cable first, you detach the USB cord, you put it in a well-ventilated area, you wait 10 minutes, 
and then you throw it off your roof. Because I can't work with a glitch in the system. Think about this, especially when the capacity to fix it is beyond me. Someone else can figure it out. I don't have the capacity to fix the glitch that I was dealing with. But that's what life is like in a broken system. Where there's this conflicting narrative, this conflicting experience where everything seems to blame the other and when you and I find ourselves powerless to come up with the solution in and of ourselves, it's beyond our capacity to fix the glitch in the system. You see, the proverbs are just that. They are proverbs. They are principles for life. They are not promises of God for good rule followers. When you read in your Bible, in Proverbs 22, and you, you read it saying, train up a child in the way that they should go and they will not depart from it. We have to ask ourselves the question, is this a proverb in principle or categorically different, is this a promise? You see, because sometimes when we see someone else's kid go sideways, what are we to assume? Is this a proverb or a promise? What about when it's your own child who goes sideways? What are you to assume? And how disoriented and how betrayed do you feel because you did things right and yet the outcome was not as you felt it was promised? My wife and I sat with some dear friends last night, and this was our conversation. They have a son who's older than our children, and, and their son has gone sideways. And for them, they're looking, saying, we did everything as best we could, and we did it right. And yet, here's where we're at. And here's the hard conversations we're having to have as a family. And here's what, what feels like a very bleak outcome is what we're working towards. When you feel that sense of betrayal, though, that God, hang on, you owe me because I did my part, where's yours, is because we failed to remember that these are proverbs, these are principles, not promises. Yes, great to live by, but not a surefire guarantee of an outcome that you desire. It's Proverbs 3, 5 that we know so well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. evil. And do you remember the, the, the comment that comes with it? It says, and it will be well with you. It will be health in your flesh and strength in your bones. So is this a proverb or a promise? Is it promising me health if I'm willing to trust God? But then what happens when you feel betrayed because your health is deteriorated or the health of someone that you love and you look and you say, God, how did you do this to me? I've been in this spot myself. Whereas newlyweds, Lindy had some health scares and the, the prognosis that they were initially giving was very scary. And that was my internal dialogue is, God, you can't do this to us because families like us don't have to deal with stuff like this. No, because we've done it right. It's Proverbs 13, 9, the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. Oh, do we have some foolproof plan where if I try to do the right thing, God's going to make everything super clear to me as if he clicked on a light, making things plain and clear for me. It's Proverbs 13, 21, disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Then the writer of Ecclesiastes, the, the preacher in it, I should say, joins the conversation, scooches up to the table with us. And in Ecclesiastes 7.15, he says, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, 
And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in wickedness. This is vanity. You see, Ecclesiastes and Job, they're, they're not in conflict. They're not contradictory with the Proverbs any more than my life in a broken system conflicts or contradicts the Proverbs. Because the Proverbs were never written as God's promises for good rule followers. You see, our devastation, though, might betray us and reveal that our expectations are a little bit off and reveal the kind of a deal that we thought we had brokered with God. I sat this week, for me personally, thinking about my life and my, my journey of faith and thought about when it first began and being in Bible college and, and having a plan and, and taking a step of faith and having it fall apart and me looking at God at his direction and saying, how do you do this to someone who's willing to follow you? I didn't have to choose faith, but I did, and yet here I am. You did me dirty, God. I wish I could say I grew out of that, but man, I've had so many moments that I had to just be honest between the Lord and myself and say, God, I am so sorry that this is such a broken, broken set of expectations that I come demanding that things be right and fair. Well, except for with all my mistakes, be gracious to those but when I feel that I'm doing what's right, I, I feel entitled, and in fact, I feel betrayed when things don't go my way. My friends, I'll be honest with you. As we step into the book of Ecclesiastes, some of you will find this to be the most depressing thing you've ever read, and you will question, why is this in the Bible, and why did these sad people choose to study it? For others of you, you will find this little book to be a faithful companion and friend, who sits with you in your pain and dismay at a life lived out in this sin-splintered, broken system. A faithful friend who gently says, I get it. I've experienced it too. I know this, the sense of betrayal and the disappointment that you feel. I know too of the disorientation that that brings in your life. It's a faithful friend who can sit with you and say, you are not alone in your wrestling with your internal turmoil. It's a faithful friend who can put language even to some of the things that we feel and don't even know how to express. So today as we step into this wonderful book that is still hope-filled, by way of introduction, I want to give you a bit of a thesis statement about Ecclesiastes that we'll just walk through three pieces of that statement in order to be introduced to the book as a whole, and then we'll jump in again next week together. But here's that thesis statement that we'll pick apart in three ways. It's this, that I believe that the message of the preacher in Ecclesiastes is best understood by viewing it in light of the past, by seeing it with an honest and accurate view of the present, and with an eye that's fixed on the future. I believe if we're going to read this and take the most out of it, then we've got to read it in light of the past, what came before it, with an honest and accurate view of the present, what he's saying in it, and our present reality that aligns with his, and with an eye fixed on the future of what is, what is a secure hope ahead of us. So first, let's talk about the past. Because I believe that the message of the preacher of Ecclesiastes is best understood by viewing it in light of the past. But I have to take you way back, like all the way back to the beginning. Back to Eden and specifically to the story of Abel. So take your mind all the way back to the beginning of time where God creates everything. And what does he say of each thing he makes? It's good. Where he then makes man in his own image and really commissions man to go make more good within creation to subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. 
all of creation is in beautiful harmony. And he said it was very good. But then everything changes. And it changes so drastically and dramatically that the voice of the preacher in in this book, in Ecclesiastes, is no longer claiming that everything is good. He's now proclaiming everything is, and I quote, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He says all of it is no longer good, it's vanity. Other translations, you might have it on your lap where it says meaningless. The Hebrew word, it's havel. What happened, though, is what we're left to wonder between creation and then, and then the writer, the preacher here, making this observation about creation being, being so terrible, being so broken. But what happens, you know the story, is that sin enters into God's good world, and the harmony that existed between God and his creation was splintered in that moment. And mankind would then be removed from the very presence of God in the Garden of Eden, but only after God would arrive to speak a promise. And the promise he would tell to Adam and Eve is that from the seed of the woman, a deliverer would arrive who would crush Satan and his evil tyranny and would bring God and man back together, reconciled once again. You see, Scripture is very clear of the implications of that moment in time when sin entered God's good world. In Romans 8, verse 20, it says that creation was then subjected to futility. When the Bible says that it was subject to futility, it's telling us that brokenness is now creation's new default setting. In every conceivable way, human sin had cursed the world. But take your mind back again. It's that moment when everything changed, when Adam and Eve were first ushered outside of the garden. I mean, can you imagine for them, just think about it, the depths of disappointment Adam and Eve must have experienced as they began to experience life on the other side of Eden. When they rebelled and sin entered God's good world, in that very moment, Scripture's clear, there was a spiritual death that took place, a death in their union with God, a separation in their relationship with God. But that spiritual death took place in an instant, but the tyranny of death would slowly begin to overshadow all of creation, like this slow injection of a deadly poison. All of creation would begin to suffer from decay and division and death. This new reality, what would it be like for Adam and Eve to be on a walk together and to see the first flowers begin to wither as their life was choked out of them by the thorns that now appeared? What was it like as they walked up towards an animal to have it first, for the first time ever, turn and snarl their direction? When was the first hunger pain that they felt? Or were still the the first labor pain that was endured? Genesis 4 is where we pick up that story, where it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and that she conceived and bore a son named Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. I have acquired actually is what Cain means. That's what she named him. I have acquired. It's very interesting. It almost feels like she's claiming that she's she's acquired the promise of the Lord. A man from the Lord is what God had promised in the garden, that that God would send a future descendant who would come and crush the enemy and reunite man and God together again. And then they'd have a second son, and they'd name him Hevel. His name would be Abel. Now fast forward in your mind to a key point in the story. 
where we have to wonder what was it like for Eve when she first spotted that son, Abel, Havel, out in the field, laying down, though, off in the distance? What was it like when Adam first arrived, perplexed and confused by what he saw because it was so foreign, something he had never seen before? See, there was no answer when he called for his son from afar. It became a rather puzzling experience when he grabbed his hand and lifted him up, but there was no response from his body. It was the first time that Adam would look at eyes and have them stare back blankly at him. Lifting now the lifeless body of his son over his shoulder, his arms now draping down his father's back, he'd begin the long trek back to their humble little shelter. And after gently laying him down again, the boy's mother would be the first to place a hand on her son's chest, to wait to feel the familiar rhythm of a heartbeat and of his lungs filling with air. She'd be the first in that moment to, with desperation and outright confusion, just whisper his name into his ear. Havel, Havel, Abel, my son, wake up. My son, wake up. I mean, what was it like in that first moment for humanity to first encounter the sorrow associated with death? It was a new experience for sure, and undoubtedly a horrendous one, that Adam and Eve had to encounter together while holding the body of their lifeless son. And can you imagine how disorienting this must have been for them? Yes, to experience the depth of sorrow associated with death, but then to also have to process the reality of the situation when the narrative becomes clear, when all the evidence points to the fact that their other son is the one who took his life. He had been murdered. It's interesting, that young son that they held, Havel, Abel, his name almost seemed to foreshadow his very existence. Because Havel, it literally means in Hebrew, a breath, or is used to describe a vapor or smoke. It could be used, and it even is in the Bible, that word is to illustrate the brevity of life. It's found in Psalm 144, verse 4, where it says, Men is like a breath. He's a Havel. His days are like the passing of a shadow. The New Testament would pick up on that imagery and James would echo it, saying that life is but a vapor. It didn't just mean, though, that it's just a breath. It could also be used to create a word picture. This name, this, this Hebrew word, the word picture was for smoke or a vapor. You see, here's the thing about smoke that's so confusing is that smoke is real, it's present, and yet it can't be grasped. It's real, it's present before us, it's gone in an instant for sure. It does communicate that to compare him to, to this, to a puff of smoke. Yes, it's here in a moment, gone in the next, but also it's there, but it can't be grasped and held on to. It's a reality that we're hit with that we can't do anything with. You see, for Adam and Eve, their son's life was cut short. It was short-lived, like a shallow breath. And it was something that they could not grasp or comprehend, the introduction of death and with it deep sorrow and the disorientation of this unfathomable nature of his death, the murder at the hands of his own brother. And if we're assuming for a moment that it's very possible that their hope was that that son Cain would be present, received as a gift from God, 
to crush the head of the enemy, he instead, they realize, has crushed his own brother instead. This is a reality and a whole new paradigm for the way that they view all of creation. This for them is something that couldn't be grasped. This for them was disorientation. This for them was the story of Havel. Now, why do I tell you all of this? Because I think for us to understand what the writer of Ecclesiastes is referencing and teaching us, we have to first look at it through a lens of the past. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, Vanities, vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word the preacher uses there that's translated in English to vanities is the word Havel. It's the name for Abel. It's the image, you remember, of a shallow breath or of a puff of smoke that's, yes, there, but can't be grasped. It can't be held on to. To use this, I'm sure, in the original language, like he did writing to Hebrew-speaking people, would have even taken their minds, triggering with that, those memories also the emotions of the introduction of death into creation of the introduction of that kind of sorrow, of the disorientation that comes with it, that that's what this guy is talking about. There are things in this life that happen, yeah, that they could happen quickly and things can change, but when they happen, they're so disorienting. It happens before us, but it can't be grasped or understood. It can't be grasped and held onto or manipulated. You know, there's things that happen in this life and that enter into our lives in a sin-splintered creation that all we can say is Havel. All we can do is think back to the very origins of it all when sorrow entered the world in a tragic way through the life of this young man. It was for Adam and Eve as death greeted them, as they cradled their lifeless son's body, that this was the word on their lips. The writer of Ecclesiastes is saying there are so many moments in our lives where we're holding what little we have and this is the word on our lips. That this is what we're saying and thinking. You see, the Hebrew scriptures, they were initially translated into the English language way back in the 1500s. And, and language does change, and so does our understanding of it. And so way back then, it was translated to be vanities in English. Now, unfortunately, fast forward a couple hundred years, you land where we're at today in the 21st century. And a vanity is either a piece of furniture or someone who is, has an overfixation on self. Or your Bible translation might render it meaningless or futility. Whereas many Bible scholars in our modern era are rethinking this and pushing back on the assumption that this was the best translation of this word Havel. Suggesting that this word implies something that is not necessarily meaningless, but something that's substanceless. An unfathomable mystery that cannot be grasped. As we'll see, the preacher in Ecclesiastes will masterfully, he will utilize nuance and some eloquent wordsmithing to use this word not just to express in moments that something is temporary, like a shallow breath that's fleeting in life experience, but then in other moments he will use it to express that there are some things that happen in life that cannot be grasped, that can't be comprehended, that are like a puff of smoke. They're there, but we can't grab hold of them. We can't comprehend them. I listened to a lecture by an influential modern Orthodox Jewish rabbi this week, and he defined this word as speaking of a shallow breath, a fleeting breath. He would define it even as to gasp, that that's what this is saying. Oh, gasp, gasp, like the wind being punched out of you. Tim Mackey, the voice and the Hebrew scholar behind the Bible project, he says that he thinks the word havel 
is really embodied by our English words paradox and enigma. That that's what he's saying. There's a paradox here, and it's enigmatic. It's shrouded in mystery. It's covered up in a way that we can't comprehend or understand it. Vanity of vanities, the preacher says. All is vanity. This becomes the mantra, if you've read through Ecclesiastes before, This is the mantra of the voice of Ecclesiastes. You'll find it almost 40 times on the pages of Scripture in just 12 chapters. Each time we're hearing him state not that something is overly fixated on itself, that it's vain. No, he's saying that that he's trying to bring you face to face with our mortality and the incomprehensible realities of life lived in a sin-splintered, broken, fallen world. This is Havel. This is what vanity is. It's that moment with Adam and Eve holding the lifeless body of their son. Havel is what I picture when I think of any parent that has to bury their child. Because it's not supposed to be this way, we say. I think of those I know who lost aging parents during the COVID era and were unable to get to them because of the COVID era. They died on their own, separated from their loved ones. That is Havel. I picture every godly couple I've known who wanted a child and grieved that they could not have one while watching the news headlines about celebrities and people they'd watch on TV who seem to pop out babies with multiple partners constantly. And we look and say, this is Havel. This doesn't make sense. Think of some of you wonderful, Jesus-loving people who are suffering greatly right now. It's Havel. I think of Carol, who I mentioned passed away this last week. Carol's a brilliant mind, had a PhD. She served in her career as an educator. And I've been privy to this week have interaction with a couple of the people that she had as students come through her classroom and through her lecture hall, but then developed an incredible relationship with her where she took on such an important role and voice in their lives. Someone who served others well. Someone who worked really hard to to live in a nice neighborhood with a house with a pool in the back, to enjoy it as she'd reach an age for retirement, and instead her body betrayed her. And she contracted some illness, a disease in the ALS family of diseases where her body literally turned on her, where her mind remained sharp, but her body failed. This is Havel. This is what we're looking at in a broken world. This is why the preacher says, Havel of Havels, it's all Havel. It's just a fleeting moment, he's saying. It's just a, it's a shallow breath. At times, it's just a gasp. It's a puff of smoke, unable to be comprehended or grasped at all. It's the thing that shatters the paradigm of our life. It's those enigmatic moments shrouded in mystery that deconstruct all that we trusted in, all that we pursued for security and significance. All of it was taken in that moment, and we called the moment Havel. My friends, as I've already told you, some of you find this already. This is depressing. Why did I come today? Some of you who are hurting, this is a friend sitting with you. The voice of this preacher joins you. Today, in your pain and dismay, in a sin-splintered, broken world, and starts to whisper to you, I get it. And in the end, we will find beautiful, bright, shining hope against the bleak backdrop of life in a broken, sin-splintered world. But before the preacher allows us to see the dawn of a new day on the horizon, he will be sure to show us the brokenness of life under the sun, a phrase he will use again and again throughout this writing. 
You see, there are two things that you're going to find are really repetitious in the message of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. The first is his use of the word vanity, and the second is his utilization of an idiom, and the idiom is life under the sun, under the sun. You see, life under the sun is not just his way of referencing life on earth, life on this planet uh, under the sun's existence or, or bright shining light. No, he's really talking about living with the mentality that all that there is is all that there is. That all that is here is all that there is. That life under the sun is the mentality that there's nothing beyond this life. The naked did I come into this world, naked will I leave it. And with any, without any real certainty or hope of what's next is how most people, is how most people live, excuse me. And that's what he's addressing here. Life under the sun is the mentality that all that is here is all that there is. There's nothing beyond it. Make no mistake, the preacher here is not an atheist, and he's not writing with the assumption that his audience were a bunch of atheists. Few in antiquity were. The preacher is, however, going to take us on a journey through his own life experience, a life that was lived seemingly without any restraint and seemingly without a thought for eternity even. And that is also who he believes himself to be addressing. Not people who don't believe in God. It's people who live without thinking he's very important. And we together over the next several weeks will enter his existential quandary, entering the tension of existence in this broken, sin-splintered world that seems to bite back at times. I think to understand the message of Ecclesiastes, we have to view it first in light of the past, which we've just done, but then we also have to choose to see it with an honest and accurate view of the present, of this messenger's present, but your present reality too. You see, it's important that we understand who we're dealing with here, our, our author, our preacher here, and it's important that we're honest with our own reality, regardless of how painful or uncomfortable that might feel for us. The who we are dealing with is really complicated. I don't know if you noticed it already, but Ecclesiastes actually introduces two voices to us, the author and the preacher. You see, I open this book and assume that I'm pulling up to a table to hear from the voice of Ecclesiastes as I open my Bible to read from it. However, I am first greeted by the author of this letter or of this little book, who's a third-party narrator in the process. You see, it starts in verse 1 where he introduces me to the voice of the preacher, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then at the end of the book, go ahead and flip that way to chapter 12, he again, this narrator, speaks up to give his own summary and closing thoughts. Chapter 12, where in verse 8, the preacher will finish by again triumphantly stating, vanity of vanity, said the preacher, all is vanity. And here is the shift from preacher to author, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. That's a stick that has a pointy end on it that would be used to poke at an animal to get them to move in the right direction. He's saying his words will poke you like that. It's going to be uncomfortable. We've all experienced it by the end. He's saying it's poked at us, but it was used to poke us in the right direction. 
It's like a goad. And the words of the scholars are like well-driven nails. They create framework for us, given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these of making many books. There is no end. And much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see, in Ecclesiastes, there's three people seated at the table. It's me. It's the voice of the preacher who will go on and on. But there is an author who kind of narrates and bookends the beginning and the end of it. The author is doing this because he believes you need to hear the preacher. And the preacher, unfortunately, believes that you and I need our bubble burst. As one scholar said it, the book of Ecclesiastes is not positive. It actually has a negative role in the Bible. The book of Ecclesiastes is essentially time to deconstruct everything that you thought you knew about life and the world and to reduce it to your knees by the end so that the good news can, in fact, become good news. In fact, his opening statement here that we read as we began does just that. You see, the preacher's introductory statement is a broad introduction to his gloomy, realistic view of man's life lived under the sun, where he does start with that statement, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit, he says, has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Here's the point he's making. One generation passes away, and then another generation comes up, but the earth abides forever. And he illustrates it. A generation comes and goes, the earth continues with its normal cycle and process. It's unwavered. The sun, it rises, the sun goes down, he says. Verse 6, the wind, it comes from this direction and then from that. The rivers run into the sea and somehow are replenished in this whole cycle that's happening. The eye is not satisfied with with seeing nor the ear with hearing. He's saying all of creation is looking on and continuing in their normal cycle. The world continues to turn and humanity comes and goes. Are you tracking with his statement? He's saying that regardless of what you do or how grandiose you might think yourself to be or even how important you are in the lives of others around you, one day he's saying you will die and the world will keep turning. The tides will continue to come in and out. The rivers continue to run. The mountains shall remain witnessing it all and society too will move on with it. And one day my family will move forward. And ultimately, at some point in time, I will be forgotten. And the preacher is illuminating the harsh, cold reality we often attempt to shield ourselves from. We don't like to think about something like that. But he's saying, apart from God, nothing is gained from all of your work and toil. Nothing. He's saying, if all of this is all that there is, it's all for nothing. It's empty. Jesus, the future preacher king from the line of David, will also come and echo this sentiment when he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? So who is our seemingly sad, mysterious preacher here in Ecclesiastes? Let's leave the discussion about whether or not this is Solomon for next time, just for the sake of time. But here he's introduced as the preacher in Hebrew, it's Koheleth. That's how he's introduced to us. The preacher or the man with something to say to the assembly is really what it's translated as. It's a preacher with a gathering in front of him, a preacher with an audience in mind. 
Ecclesia is a Latin word where we get a theological term, ecclesiology, the study of the scriptures or of the gathering of the church. That's the roots of that word are found in this word for the messenger, because it's a messenger who has an audience in mind and his audience in mind are the masses of humanity. We call it Ecclesiastes because it's saying that this is a message for the audience of the masses, for the ecclesia, for the gathering of humanity. For this guy, he believes that what he says has such broad appeal and application that it could stretch across all of society into every life and home, and that it would last and stretch across all of time into every human era. And he's not wrong. Because thousands of years later, we are finding his truth still hit us squarely in the jaw. In fact, look at how his first section finishes to illustrate this, where he says this in verse 9, That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. And you're picturing right now like 90s fashion trends resurfacing to all of our dismay right now. And you're like, this is not new. Verse 10, is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been since ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. Okay, before his gloomy conclusion and friendly reminder that no one seems to remember the past, which would include one day that no one will remember you, before getting there, he will first declare that there are things that are unchanging, and that there are things that people might claim are new, but he's saying there's nothing that's new. Now, admittedly, this man never held an iPhone. He never received an email. I can remember the first time I saw email trans, uh, transaction between two computers and having my mind blown. He never surfed the web. He never flew in an airplane. However, as one lecturer I listened to eloquently put it, and I so appreciated it, he said, all technology really does is take our bodies and just create new, more fancy extensions of them. So all the iPhone is then is a fancy extension of our ear, of our eyes, and of our mouth, and of our to-do list. That's basically all that technology provides for us. You see, the point of the preacher is not about technological advances. It's that he would say in our modern setting, like, hey, we might have an international space station now, but that won't keep mothers from weeping over their sons. It's not fixing anything. The internet, it's not going to heal a person's loneliness or search to belong. Technology won't change the dog-eat-dog vibe in society that exists and exhausts and crushes us. Crime isn't going anywhere, nor the unpredictability both of life and the weather. Dictators are still a thing, as well as the abuse of power. The poor and the hungry are still with us, as well as the rich who still find themselves to be lonely. Nothing has changed, the preacher, if he's here today, would point out. We are just a recreation of a previous generation's brokenness. We've just got better extensions connected to it now, don't we? You see, the message of the preacher in Ecclesiastes is best understood by viewing it from the past and by seeing it with an honest and accurate view of the present. And the present isn't just about him, it's about us. Because the truth is, for many of us, our experience under the sun is lived the whole of our lives with the belief that if I only had more fill-in-the-blank, then I'd live the good life. Then I'd be satisfied. The preacher will be for us a spokesman and figurehead who yells back at that line of thinking saying, no, you won't. You won't be more satisfied because what he's going to tell us is, I tried that too, and it wasn't as great as you hoped it would be. 
That experience, been there, done that, got the hat and the shirt to match. Like, I've done it all. We'll discover that the preacher had the health, the time, and the resources to do an experience all that we've dreamed or ever said, if I only had more, again, fill in the blank, then and only then would my life be complete. More pleasure, more success, more wisdom, more power, more freedom, more friendship, more passion, more love. Our spokesman and figurehead stands to his feet, raises his hands and says, I had it all. And I say, vanity of vanities. All of it was vanity. Zach Eswine in his book, Recovering Eden, said this about how this book requires us to intentionally enter some discomfort. He said, as a reader, you will have to start off with meaninglessness and wade through 12 chapters of tension, poetry, proverbs, unanswered questions, unsettling speech, and intimate language before arriving at the point he wants to make. Because of this approach, in order to get the truth he wants to, us to see, we have to be willing to take a look at things we do not like to see. See, if we're going to understand this, we have to view it through the lens of the past with an honest look at the present, but still with an eye fixed on the future. And this is where we land and finish, and we're going to transition into communion here. Because this book is going to show us brokenness of life lived under the sun. Not just the brokenness of creation, but how destructive the paradigm and belief that this is all that there is, that, that, that all that is is all that I can see, and there's nothing beyond that. He's going to show how broken that paradigm is. That if you live your life without an eye on eternity and a confidence and a secure eternity, that life is going to be so very sad and difficult. You see, for us, we have the joy of hindsight that he didn't. We have the gift of time and perspective where we can look back and with clarity see a second, please hear me, a greater preacher and king from the line of David. We have Jesus in our view who would not just enter the broken world and experience all that we gasp from and cannot grasp, which would leave us confident that he can understand and help us, he would also go to a cross and rise from the grave to prove that life under the sun is not all that there is. See, the preacher is here saying, listen, we all die and creation moves on as the world continues to turn. And Jesus arrives and gives a second parallel truth that runs alongside of that, doesn't he? Where he says, but look around at creation and look at the beauty in our innate detail that God supplies in the flowers, the grasses, and even the birds in the air. And how much more value are you to him than they? It's not all empty. We have a second preacher. You see, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is a realist who does want to deconstruct your attempts to extract significance or security from anything found under the sun while pushing you simultaneously to enjoy the beauty and the gift of life under the sun when it's freed from the pressure to exploit it, to, to use it for meaning and purpose in our lives. He's going to tell you, enjoy a glass of wine because you're freed now. You don't have to use it as an escape from reality. You can just enjoy it. You don't use it to chase a buzz, to, to forget about reality. He tells them, you, you can enjoy your work because it's no longer the way that you build your identity and prove your self-worth. If you can find your identity and self-worth somewhere else. He tells them, take in the beauty of creation without chasing each beautiful thing for satisfaction because you've already discovered it somewhere else. 
You can enjoy these things for what they are. They are gifts from a gracious and generous God who gives good gifts because we don't have to squeeze them for what they cannot give. They cannot give us purpose in life or meaning to our existence. If I can find my significance and security separate from them, then I'm freed to enjoy God's good earth and the beauty that's there without ruining them. And that significance and security is only found in something that is unchanging and everlasting, the faithful, lavish love of God. Sitting with Carol, if, if we only had one preacher's voice, it's that, yes, this was all vain and empty. But sitting with her because of a second preacher's voice is telling her, we will run again together. The preacher's job here is to create a black backdrop that allows for the beauty of the gospel to be seen and appreciated to a greater degree. And my heart's desire as we walk through this is, yes, that the things of earth grow strangely dim, but that the brightness and the glory of his grace shines even brighter than ever before. You see, we'll view our, our journey through Ecclesiastes through the light of the future, Because Jesus would come and experience the harsh reality of life under the sun, and he can understand and help you. It's not just the writer of Ecclesiastes who says, I understand. It's Jesus who went to the Garden of Gethsemane, who suffered deeply. And he will go to a cross and then lay in a grave to bring the dawn of a new day of resurrection. Jesus proved to us this is not all that there is, that there's so much more beyond this. He is our living hope, we call him. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.